Uh, This morning we're going to be in Psalm 53 um, in our sermon series, Scale the Mountain. And while you're turning there, um, I will remind you, scale stands for story, Christ, affections, love, and exaltation. I finally put it on the screen. And uh, these are um, five lenses that we look uh, at our psalm through, and uh, they help us interpret the psalm and understand God's Word. Now, Psalm 53, verse 1. Oh, uh, did I not put Psalm 53 up there? Oh, okay. Well, we'll go back to that in a sec. Paul was saying this morning that last week there were too many slides, and this week there's a lot of slides as well. So, uh, good luck, Paul. Psalm 53. To the choir master, according to Mahalath, a mesquil of David. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God? There they are in great terror when there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice in Israel. Be glad. Let's pray. Lord, would that final line of the psalm be the posture of our hearts this morning? Would we rejoice and be glad in you? Would you remind us of the finished work of your son and uh, point our hearts toward a deeper understanding of our own sinfulness? And in doing so, would we see a greater picture of your glory and your grace? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so now back to that other slide that was up there. There we go. Uh, This morning, we're going to be going through three points in our sermon, the foolishness of the fool, the sinfulness of the sinner, and the deliverance of the Savior. And all this is going to be talking about how salvation for us has come from Zion to restore us. Say that one more time, salvation from Zion has come to restore us. And I also want to say before we begin, if you see this, you say, this looks familiar I may have seen this psalm earlier in the book of Psalms. You would be right. It's also in Psalm 14. um, And uh, I'll just say the psalm is so important, the Lord said it to us twice. And he often repeats things to us in the Bible. There are repeated stories, repeated events, repeated teachings. And so uh, when we were planning this sermon series, I thought, well, it's in there twice, so we should at least talk about it once. now, let's, let's get on with our first point. It talks about the foolishness of the fool. The first line of this psalm says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And that is the heart of what true foolishness is. The belief that there is no God. And obviously, the foolishness is the opposite of what wisdom is. Proverbs says this about wisdom, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and fools despise wisdom and instruction. And I think this makes sense. God is all-wise. 
He's all-knowing. Isaiah even says this about God who created mankind. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The whole earth is full of God's glory. Why? Because the earth is teeming with people. You and I are image bearers of God. So, when we say in our hearts, there is no God, we are kicking against what God made us to be like. We are image bearers. We're meant to worship Him and glorify Him. But, in our culture today, we are told the opposite. The Bible tells us to align our hearts with God's will for our lives. And, you know, this is why we talked about repentance last week. Repentance is lining your heart up to God's will, and it's how we get our hearts back in line with the Lord. But the world tells us to make God align with our values, our desires, whether those come from politics or from our social circle or from our own preferences. And if God doesn't listen to my desires or those things, then he doesn't really matter. We can get rid of him and, or, or keep the parts we like about him, and all that is all good. And it says, the fool says, in his heart there is no God. This isn't just talking about, you know, the modern-day atheist. It is interesting David would write this in an ancient setting when virtually everybody believed in God. There was no true atheism in the ancient world. Rather, he says, the fool says, in his heart, whenever we sin against God, we act like there is no God. We say in our hearts there is no God. And I think we do this in subtle ways sometimes. Lord, man, I, I love that thing you do about caring for the poor. That's really great. But you tell me to love my enemies. My enemies? To reconcile with that person? I, I really don't think you know how bad he or she is. Or, okay, okay. Lord, I need to love you above all things, but that sounds like a lot of work. I've got to give up my me time. Yeah, I don't know about that. Or, for some people, you know, God demands exclusive worship only to Him. What about those who don't believe in God? That's really offensive. And I don't want to offend that person, so it's probably better for me to say that's just okay. It's really easy for us, even as Christians, to say in our hearts, there is no God when we disobey God and sin against Him. That's where the rest of the song goes. It goes from saying there is no God to spending the rest of the next four verses talking about sin. Our sinful condition is evidence of the condition of our hearts. And even if some people pay lip service to God, one could just as easily say in their hearts that God doesn't exist. Think of some of the examples in our history and in our world where this is true. Think of the slave owners in American history who not only didn't teach their slaves to read so that they would learn about freedom from the Bible, but intentionally kept parts of the Bible from them so that they wouldn't learn about their freedom. Or what about this? When I was on summer mission in Croatia, I heard stories from many students about priests abusing their power who drove sport, sports cars and had secret wives, completely abandoning their role to shepherd God's flock in favor of material things and worldly pleasures. And we know that's not just in Croatia, that's everywhere, right? Think of how many people today 
whether they're conservative or liberal or whatever, who rather than following the Lord in their hearts, absorb the principles of their political parties and justify sin in the name of God. And it's really easy for us to look around at the world and say, wow, they're so bad out there. But I think if we all check our own hearts, we know that there are places in our lives, corners of our hearts where we want to say, I don't want God here. That's all of us. What are the places in your heart where you are tempted to say, there is no God? I don't want God intruding on this corner of my heart. Is it your career? Or is it your family? Your education? Is it your free time or your money? Is it your sexuality or your love life or your future? Is it the way you speak to and about other people? Or is it about those people in your life you just think, ah, don't like them. There are lots of corners in our lives where we say in our hearts, there is no God. But I don't want you to be discouraged by this, friends. Salvation from Zion has come to restore us. If you find these things within yourself, you can repent. And if you're a Christian, God will give you more and more wisdom as you grow up in him and following him, and you will continue to turn toward him, growing in wisdom. And I will say, if you turn from your sin to follow the Lord, you are not a fool. The fool consistently says in his heart, there is no God. And I also want to say, foolishness has nothing to do with natural intelligence. You could be dumb as a box of rocks, but if you love the Lord, he will fill you with his wisdom, and you will become wise. You could be the least intelligent person or the most intelligent person, but your wisdom is not based on worldly things, but is based on the Lord. And if you trust the Lord, the very God of wisdom dwells within you. So I want to talk to kids. Kids, look at me. Kids, look at me. I'm talking to you. You are young. There are a lot of things you haven't learned yet. But just because you're young does not mean that you are absent from the Lord's wisdom. If you trust in the Lord, children, even at a young age, he will start giving you wisdom now. It is not a foolish thing to do to trust the Lord. So that is my charge to you, children. Even though you're a child, you could look up at adults and say, man, they've got a lot of wisdom. I'll never be like them. I'm telling you right now, trust the Lord. It is a very wise thing to do. Don't be discouraged. You will get there someday. And to all of us, I want to say one thing I think that affects all of us if we live in this secular American West, which we all do. Uh, we get the impression sometimes from the world around us, all of us, and uh, I, I don't know, I can't always put my finger quite on where this thought comes from, but it enters my mind sometimes that, you know, it's really the default belief for people in all times and in all places to disbelieve God, and that this God thing was somehow made up over the course of the years. Have you guys heard things like this or had these thoughts? I think all of us have had these thoughts before, and, and it's, it's kind of weird. Where do those come from? Like, I believe in God. I believe God exists. And our psalm says the one who doesn't believe in God is a fool, and the book of Ecclesiastes says this, 
I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He's made everything beautiful in its time. He has made everything. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to the end. In all of us, in all of our hearts, God has written eternity into our hearts in such a way that God's works are veiled to us, sure, but our desires, our thoughts, our emotions, our affections, that's the A in scale, every single one of them contains some sort of longing for the eternal, some sort of longing for God. So why do we have these thoughts that maybe there's really nobody out there? Well, this is a classic source of temptation. There there are three classic sources of temptation for all Christians that have just taken on modern tastes. Those are the devil, the flesh, and the world. Satan, the devil, is a master craftsman to get you to disbelieve in God. He prowls around like a lion looking to devour you, to devour God's people, to devour all people. And there's no more sure way to ruin a person than to get them to dis- disbelieve the only one who loves them perfectly and eternally, the only one we were meant to be with forever. God created us to love Him, to glorify Him, and to worship Him. So, if you today are struggling with unbelief, maybe it's because Satan is tempting you. He's tempting you to turn away, to not trust the Lord. And you need to resist Him. It's hard work. And it takes the community of believers, and it takes prayer. We're in a war with the devil. The war is already won. Christ has already won it on the tree, but it's still hard, and there are still battles to be fought. Our flesh is also a very powerful source of temptation. We want our comforts, our entertainment, our own world, and we really don't want God meddling in all that, the desires of this life. It is, after all, inconvenient and costly to follow the Lord. While we often focus on the intellectual ideas that lead to unbelief, I think more powerful are the abundance of comforts at our fingertips. And we get them really cheap that we, that we literally have at our fingertips. All we got to do, I ordered some things on Amazon this morning for our, for our coffee service out there. And uh, it, we can just get things so quick, so cheap. It's very tempting. And finally, the world. We talked about Satan, our flesh, and the world. I'm not talking about here, about the nations or, or different peoples and languages. That's a different use of the world. But Paul says in Ephesians 4, 14, every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. In Acts 17, Paul calls idols images formed by the art and ima- imagination of man. This is what I mean by the world. Things formed by man and not by God to tell us that God doesn't exist and that he's irrelevant if he does. So let me give an example. Have you guys ever wondered why we learn about religion in school only in social studies class? Have you guys thought about that? We don't have a class dedicated to religion growing up anyway. I I don't say this to bash any teachers. I'm married to a teacher. She's the best teacher in the world. But uh, let's let's look at this quote from the uh, National Council for the Social Studies. The study of religion is a critical lens for understanding human existence in its broader cultural context, including its relation to economic, political, social institutions, as well as the impact of religion on history, arts, geography, language, and literature. Like I said, this is not bashing social studies teachers. 
But uh, what I am saying is that our culture has it backwards. Look at the quote. Religion, a.k.a. God, is for understanding human existence. Our human existence comes first here, according to these people. I don't know who runs this program, but the Bible tells us that our human existence is actually all about God. He's first. And everything in this world is designed to bring Him glory, to understand Him. And only in doing so can we understand ourselves. There's a subtle message being told here that religion is a means to an end of understanding art, economics, politics, etc. That doesn't mean there's no effect here, but this is the subtle message that gets taught. Or how about this? How many of you guys hear about like a work-life balance? You guys, you guys know this? We're, we're taught to put everything in boxes. So I put my work in a box over here. I put my life in a box over here. I put my family in a box. And I really don't like the boxes getting messy together. Um, and what happens is we have our religion box. We have our church box and our God box. And uh, we put that away when we go to work. Or we put that away when we have our free time. Um, but the problem is, that doesn't actually work out. Have you guys tried this, keeping the different parts of your life separate? They tend to spill into one each other, one another. I was thinking of a better metaphor than boxes. It's kind of like you chewed a bunch of pieces of different colored gum. Like, you know the zebra gum? My grandma used to give me the zebra gum growing up. Like, you chewed a bunch of different colors and just mashed them together. It's kind of what life is like. And then when you try to pull them apart, they just, you get pieces of the other parts in there. And God is like the, the big piece of gum that holds them all together. I don't know. But, uh, but this, is what our, this is what we're told. We're told to keep your religion over there. Keep God over there. He doesn't interfere with this. It's subtle, right? I don't think I've ever had anybody explicitly tell me that. But we get these ideas in our mind. I found these just by searching my mind, you know. I could give dozens of other examples from history, from our world, from, from my own thoughts. But our world is, is crafty. That's maybe the the most crafty out of all of these. Um, well, I shouldn't say that. Satan is, is, is the most crafty. Our flesh is, is the most gluttonous. Uh, but all of these subtly tempt us against God. It's hard. Now, I want to address everybody in this room who, for whatever reason, is dealing with some sort of doubt. Maybe you're doubting God because of a situation in your life. You're struggling with a sin, or you just don't know where the doubts come from. I want to let you know that we want City Hope to be the church where you can wrestle with your doubts with us. We sometimes get the idea that doubts are a good thing, that we should embrace the doubts, give in to every question. That's not true. Doubts cause us to not believe the truths of God or to question Him. But in the midst of all your doubts, God has not left you. He is not gone. He is not uncaring. He cares for you. I know many people struggle with a lot of anxiety about their doubts. But the temptations of the devil, the flesh, the world, your doubts, none of these can compare with the strength of the Lord. None of them. He is strong and mighty. There are still skirmishes every day. We must fight. But we have God on our side. For all of us, resisting temptation is not easy. Temptation to sin, temptation to doubt, whatever. That's why we have each other. That's why the Lord has given us prayer. We can talk to the Lord. We can talk to Him. 
and he will answer our prayers, even if we don't see the answer in this life, because he is good. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And if that is the foolishness of the fool, well, we're here to our second point, the sinfulness of the sinner. The psalm spends most of its time dwelling on this idea of our sinful condition. It's pretty much four whole verses, and the, the idea is all throughout. And Paul even quotes this psalm in Romans 3. So we've got this text up there. He's making the point that both Jews and Greeks are sinners condemned by God. And this is what he says. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned, to, turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. There he quotes our psalm and he keeps quoting other verses of the Bible. He says, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. An asp is a snake. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. These verses, both in our psalm and in Romans, are not simply about the sins people commit, but about the sinful condition of our hearts. You guys see the severity of our sinful condition? It's widespread and complete. Widespread in the sense that everybody has sinned, nobody is exempt, not you or me. And it's complete in the sense that it taints all parts of our being. We have, as verse 3 says, become corrupt. This is what the psalm says about how our sinful condition affects us. Verse 3 says our works are not good. Verse 3 and 5 say our knowledge and understanding are corrupted. Verse 1 says our hearts are sick. Verse 4 says people eat up and devour their neighbors like bread. Paul says in Romans that people, their talk is like the venom of snakes. That's like the serpent in Eden. We talk like the devil. We are quick to shed blood. We bring ruin and misery and have no peace. There is no fear of God. This is what I called last week the bad news of the gospel. <laughs> it, uh, it's so bad. Um, and, and theologians call this heart condition that we all experience total depravity. It's called total depravity. This doesn't mean that human beings have no good in them or they're unable to do one right thing in their lives or show an ounce of compassion. That's not true. I, we see non-Christians all the time who make good decisions and uh, God has given us common grace. So n nobody is 100% does bad things all the time. But it does mean that apart from God, our whole being and doing is tainted by sin and sinful desires to the point where we are unable to even seek God on our own. That's what the psalm says. God looks to see if there's any who seek after God and what? They've all fallen away. All people. Think about that in your own life, in the lives of those around you. You ever try to do a really good thing, and once that good thing is done, you realize, my motivations were corrupt doing that good thing. That's so annoying. <laughs> this happens to me all the time. That's evidence of our depravity. The psalm is clear. Humanity is totally depraved. We are shot through with sin in all our parts, Heart, soul, mind, body, strength, all of it. So, why do we spend so much time 
dwelling on our sinful state. Well, the psalm spends a lot of time doing it, four verses out of six. It's like two-thirds of the time. In fact, Matthew Henry is an old Bible commentator who's long dead, but he said the whole point of this text is to reflect deeply on our sin. That's the whole point. Um, There also seems to be a really funny thing going on in the psalm. Did you guys notice it when we're talking about depravity? All have sinned, all are totally depraved, and yet God is on the side of some and not of others. Do you see that? He's got his people. They eat up my people as they eat bread, verse 4 says. There are God's enemies and people who are God's friends. How does that happen? I thought God was holy. How does he side with sinners who are not holy? So how, if nobody seeks for God, how are there worshipers of God? Worship is the opposite of sin. How is that possible? That's point two. And point three is dwelling on our sinful state is necessary for understanding our third point, the deliverance of the Savior. We've talked about the foolishness of the fool and the sinfulness of the sinner. We now talk about the most important part of all this, the deliverance of the Savior. Friends, salvation has come out of Zion. It has already come. He has already come. It's not right for us to simply talk about our sin and wallow in our guilt if we don't talk about the one who can make us well. He makes us well from those who oppress God's people. Look at verse 5. There they are in great terror where there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Here, there's a specific historical instance, we don't know what's going on, where people are oppressing God's people. It looks like there's a siege, right? They're encamped against you. But David is saying, don't be afraid. God has already won the war. He's already had the victory. In fact, not only that, he scattered the bones of your opponents. Not only have they died but you can't even find their bones. That's not good. Uh, I want my bones to be six feet under in a specific spot when I die. But that's the fate for God's enemies. And I should say it's a reason to rejoice for God's people. God is on the side of his, his people. He doesn't see any oppression or injustice and let it go unnoticed. And David says salvation would come from Zion, but why? Zion. Why that mountain? Well, this is part of the reason why our sermon series is called Scale the Mountain, because Mount Zion is very important for God's people, both in the Old Testament and the New. And I think we don't realize that this is because this is where Jerusalem was built, and this is where the temple was built. On Mount Zion, where the temple was, was where God gave his his where, where God promised he would dwell with his people. The temple is a symbol of God's presence, and Jerusalem is a symbol of God's presence with his people. And not only that, the blessings of his people as well. And this sheds light on the New Testament promise that we are God's temple. That means God dwells with us. And then, of course, there's that word in verse 5, rejected. Verse 5 says God rejected Israel's enemies, but that means that God has accepted his people. 
Some are rejected, others are accepted. But here's, we're back to the puzzle. How does God take a people who are godless fools, who are rejecting God right and left, totally depraved, and accept them? That doesn't just happen in a vacuum. In fact, it says no one seeks for God. We are unable in our sinful condition to seek God. Our depravity makes us totally unable to worship rightly in any of our capacities. And the answer is that when we don't seek God, which is never, God seeks us and chooses us. Say that one more time. God seeks and chooses us. He chooses his people. I remember I was wrestling through this idea in college. Mookie discipled me when I was an undergrad student at Ball State for three years. That's a huge blessing. If you guys don't know Mookie, you should get to know him. I asked him about this idea uh, about God choosing people. So uh, theologians call this idea election, is God's choosing of people. And he simply brought to me one verse, and it's this passage quoted in Romans. And I will say that the theology and ideas of Psalm 53 are all throughout the book of Romans. No one seeks for God. He asked me about that verse, and he said, if we don't seek for God, how can we have faith? How is that possible? He just left me with that question. I was the, and this was at the end of the semester, so we didn't have a chance to talk about this for a whole another three months. And it became, so, so the whole summer I wrestled with this question. It became clear, and has become even more clear since then, that this is a key theme in the whole Bible. We are shot through with sin. But in Christ, He redeems us. He saves us. He seeks us. And He chooses us. We don't seek for God. We've all fallen away. We have enemies that are too strong for us. Let's continue to read in the book of Romans some of the implications of this. And some of the implications of the gospel. Romans 3 says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The implication, though all sin, all of us, God's grace is a free gift. We don't have to earn redemption. God has given it to us. He's given it to His chosen people. It's a gift. Romans 5 says this, Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved, through, uh, saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The implication is we were, past tense, enemies of God, actively rebelling against him. But now we worship God because God has delivered us. He has sought us out and chosen us. Romans 8 says this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The implication of this, in Romans 8, Paul here is talking about all the sufferings and persecutions of this life. But because God has 
called us according to his purpose. Every suffering you experience, everything that has been done to you, every pain you suffered, every hurt you are enduring, none of it is going to waste. Because God has a purpose for you and for me. He is sovereign over your life. He's sovereign over the situation in our psalm, right? He's already scattered the enemies. Now, you may be asking, well, Paul quotes the psalm here, but what does this have to do with our, New Test- our post-New Testament lives now? What does it have to do with our psalm? What does it have to do with Romans? What does it have to do with this whole God-saving-us thing? But I will repeat the thing that I've said multiple times in the sermon series. If you miss Christ in the Psalms, you miss the point of the whole thing. You miss the point of the whole thing if you miss Christ. Because in this Psalm, David is crying out for God to deliver him and his people from an ungodly attacker. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. And he did. I don't know the situation, but, you know, David lived a long life and he died. And, you know, he was the ruler of God's people. And there's no indication that he was ever defeated totally. But there is a greater sense later in history from this psalm that the psalm was answered. And the cry of the psalm was fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Salvation for God's people, not just from a, an attacker besieging a city, but ultimate, final, and complete salvation has come. It has come. This is my main point. Salvation from Zion has come to restore us. Salvation has come in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who came to make God's enemies sons. And he came to restore our hearts, to woo us to the Lord, to give us the Spirit so that we may rightly worship and glorify God in all things. Friends, if you are a Christian, no matter what sufferings you're enduring, no matter what sins you're struggling with, The Lord, He has done it. He has made you His friend. And He has called you His son or daughter. So, fellow sons and daughters, God has saved you. He has saved you. I can't say it enough. God has saved you. You who were a slave to your sin, is what the Bible says, and your depravity, you've actually been made right with God. You've been washed clean. And before I get to my final word, I want to say that this is kind of offensive in our modern world and to a lot of people, and it's hard to hear. If you're not sure how you feel about some of these ideas of, you know, depravity and God choosing us and things like that, that's okay. It's okay. Like I said earlier, we want this church to be a place where we wrestle with hard things, and this is a hard truth of the scriptures. I want to say to you, no matter where you are, no matter what you're wrestling through, trust the Lord. He will save you. And I will say he's already saved you 2,000 years ago on that tree. Okay, let's recap. The foolishness of the fool is that he says in his heart there is no God. And then that reveals our sinful state through and through. But deliverance has come from Zion to seek and to save us. Where do we stand now? In the midst of Christ having already saved us, where do we now stand? Well, the answer is, we live in the already and the not yet at the same time. We live in the overlap of the ages. On the one hand, Christ has died and he has resurrected. 
He's given us new life and new glorified bodies. That's what Romans 8 says. And yet, we still live in the sinful body. There's a tension there. Our sin has been totally and completely dealt with, and yet we still struggle with it. God has promised total renewal of the earth, total peace for all mankind, and total healing, and yet we still hurt. We're still oppressed. God's people all over the world, there's a map up there, are still persecuted. God has actually, truly, and really delivered us. The resurrection is evidence of that. And yet, we still await the future deliverance for the whole earth when everything will be made new, whole, and right again. We have a permanent place with God, and yet we still lose hope. All these things are true simultaneously. That's the tension we live in right now. But, don't forget, there is a day when Christ is coming back. He is bodily risen. He will bodily come back and save all his people from the sufferings of this life and deliver us once and for all from the final grips of sin and, and lock away Satan, who has been given a fatal wound, by the way. So he's already lost the war. And I want to end with this charge to you. Christian, look at me. Keep pressing on. Keep pressing on. This is our hope. God has already saved us. He's already delivered us. He already has chosen us from his flock, and he can't lose us. Salvation from Zion has, past tense, come to restore us, and it is finished. That's what the Lord said on the cross. It is finished. We can't fail. We can't lose. And Christ has won the victory. So, to end our sermon today as we have you know, in all the psalms past, we're going to read this psalm together, starting in verse 1 right here. So why don't you all stand up, and we're going to read, and then we're going to pray, and then Serena's going to lead us in worship. All right, let's read this psalm together. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They all have fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread, do not call upon God. There they are, in great terror, where there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for the past deliverance that you have given us through your Son, and all the deliverances of God's people before then and since then, for keeping your church intact and pure. And Lord, as the psalm says, we wait for the restoration of the fortunes of your people, but we know at the same time that is an accomplished fact. We wait for the return of your Son to come down to deliver us from all these things. Would we wait patiently? Lord, would you lead our hearts in worship.
until that day. In Jesus' name, amen.